Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here from a very wet and gusty Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller from a rather pleasant morning in south-east London. And today, first of all, was wishing a very happy belated birthday to the world's oldest living test cricketer, Eileen Ash, who's just turned 109. She played seven test matches for England before and after the Second World War. She had an interesting life outside cricket. She was uh, an MI6 agent for 11 years. She took up golf after she um, retired from cricket and went on playing till she was 98. She passed a driving test aged 105 and gave yoga lessons to the England cricket captain, uh, Heather Knight. And um, to celebrate her 106th birthday, she took a flight in a tiger moth. Well, today I'm thrilled to say that we've got almost as remarkable a guest as Eileen Ash herself in the shape of my very old friend, Charles Lysett, against whom I've been playing cricket for approximately 35 years. Charles is one of Ireland's most distinguished constitutional lawyers, and also he is what, in an old-fashioned term, used to be called a man of letters. He's biographer of Brendan Bracken, the founder of, F- of the FT, and Cheddar, as Charles puts it, to Winston Churchill. He's written a very moving memoir of his kinsman, the Irish nationalist Edward McLeisett. He was president of the Union, Cambridge Union, that is to say, in 1964, replacing Ken Clark and defeating comprehensively the future Lib Dem leader, Vince Cable. But above all, he knows far more about Irish cricket than anyone else I know, and so we're absolutely thrilled to have him on this podcast. We very much are. Welcome, Charles. Going straight into the history of Irish cricket, Roland Bowen's great history says that cricket was popular enough in Ireland to be banned by Cromwell. Cromwell, of course, did ban a lot of things, so that may not say terribly much, but then Bowen says the first recorded match in Ireland was uh, in 1792, the Dublin Garrison beat all Ireland by an innings. And the future Duke of Wellington played in that match. I wondered if you knew how he'd performed. Well, Cromwell, of course, is blamed for everything. I don't know that there was any cricket in his time. But, in fact, Gerald Siggins, who's a great historian of Irish cricket, has dug out a reference to a cricket game in 1731, so upsetting the idea that the game to which you, Richard, refer in 1792 was the first game. That was a game where the Duke of Wellington played in it. He got five runs, I think. He was bowled out by a man who later became the Duke of Richmond. It was a game at the Vice Regal Lodge uh, in Dublin, and uh, that was in 1792. And um, so, yes, that is correct. Strangely, the score sheet described him as Westby, but it's obviously meant... Wesley, and so he he was the man concerned in that game. Got five, I think, as I say, it was bowled by Lennox. Lennox later became the Duke of Richmond, and of course, Viceroy of Ireland at one stage. Were they they using a Duke's cricket ball? (laughs) 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know who was the Lord Lieutenant at the time and the Vice Regal Lodge for the game, but that's usually dated as the first game of cricket in Ireland. What was the 1731 game which Mr Siggins, who we ought to have on at a later stage, uncovered? Well, it's just a reference in the Dublin Penny Journal. There was no details of the game, but just that the game took place again in the Phoenix Park. But I don't think, it was, I'm not sure that it was in the Vice Regal Lodge or such. It was just a, a cryptic reference to a game of cricket. That would almost be for the first games of cricket in England, in Hambleton, isn't that the place where they dated down in Yes, Hampton? I mean, it's... Just about Absolutely. It's, what, what is so interesting about this is really that the roots of cricket in Ireland are as pretty well as ancient as the roots of cricket in England. The Phoenix Club, though, was founded... You sent a wonderful note, by the way, in Abridged History of Irish Cricket, which I think you should publish at some stage, Charles. The Phoenix Club was founded in 1830, wasn't it? Yes, that's when cricket is getting underway, the beginning of forming clubs, Phoenix, and shortly afterwards, Trinity Club, the the university, Trinity College. And uh, Gerald Siggins has just brought out a wonderful encyclopedia of cricket at the university. He's a graduate of of Trinity. That's a terrific, full of marvellous information about the game. Now, again, in your note, which you sent us, you talk about Charles Stuart Parnell, then of the future nationalist leader, playing for Phoenix. Tell us about the Parnells and cricket. Yes, they seem to be very keen on cricket. His father played for the Phoenix Club at the very beginning and got a heart attack and died on his way back from a game there. And then they had a team on the estate in Wicklow. When he came back from Cambridge, he was at Morton in Cambridge, and he came back then in the 1860s and he organised County Wicklow cricket. And uh, he um, was an unsporting captain, though he he had a disagreement. He led his team off the field and so on. He was a very imperious kind of figure, I have to tell you. And uh, cricket was quite uh, prominent uh, in Wicklow. But that was... There was a lot of cricket in the 1860s and 70s organised by landlords on their estates and they'd uh, get a team up and play against another team. There was quite good relations between landlords and tenants in the 1860s and 70s, which I suppose helped them to get uh, teams uh, going. But then, of course, in the 1870s, he went into politics and uh, his cricket career ceases at that stage. I imagine there were certain conservative politicians who thought that Parnell's contact on the cricket field heralded what he was going to do in the House of Commons in the 1880s, I think it was. No, well, I'm not sure that he was uh, all that egalitarian on the cricket field. I'd say he ordered everyone round, but uh, yes. I don't think he ever played for Parliament's team, the the Lords and Commons. I don't suppose that existed in those days. It did, actually. Yes, it it started, I think, as early as the 1840s. Oh, that's most interesting. I remember it started before overarm bowling actually was legalised. Richard played for many years for the Lords and Commons. I knew that, yes. Yes, that was that's interesting. I'm sure he didn't because he was a very isolated figure in Parliament. He held himself very aloof. And, of course, the Irish uh, party, when he led it, 
created terrific commotions in Parliament by obstructing debates and every kind of thing around 1880. And then, of course, they took up the tenants' cause. So I couldn't see him being invited, and if invited, would scarcely have played. You know? Charles, um, in the 19th century, what sort of people played cricket in, um, in Ireland and, and formed teams? Is it just a case of um, landlords and tenants, and were the tenants willing to play cricket, or did they have to be sort of press-ganged? Or is it sort of popular among all, all classes? It would have been, at that period, it would have been popular among all classes. Certainly, landlords might have provided pitches and uh, that kind of thing. But uh, no, it had a general popularity in, in rural Ireland uh, among all groups. And in Dublin, of course, the kind of middle class played it. I don't think it ever had a working class base in Dublin. It was the people, bank officials and people like that and remained the backbone of the game. And of course, more in the the Protestant community would have been uh, more committed to uh, cricket uh, as time went on because they... Um, didn't take part in the Gaelic games. So there was an element of the Protestant uh, community. Their schools played cricket and so on. When the Gaelic Athletic Association gets going in the um, later 19th century, there's a, they actually banned Gaelic um, games players from playing cricket at all, didn't they? Yes, that went on until 1970. You couldn't play what they called garrison games, which were rugby, soccer, uh, hockey and cricket. Those were the games. You couldn't either play them or watch them, or you might be expelled from the Gaelic Athletic Association. But like a lot of laws in Ireland, it wasn't necessarily strictly enforced even by them. And there's Kilkenny, for instance, which uh, Peter's knowledge of the game there was of great hurling county and at the same time cricket went on being played until the second world war in every village in kilkenny yes there's a remark there's a book isn't there about the history of cricket in kilkenny and there was it reveals that there were a stunning number of local teams there uh, yes right till the second world war they diminished seriously in sort of lack of petrol or something in the war the teams broke up and then a lot of people were emigrating when you got into the 50s so that it died out but it wasn't the pressure from the GAA actually uh, that's the Gaelic and it wasn't De Valera who was responsible either are you saying De Valera, in fact, played cricket at Black Rock. You see, De Valera was a poor boy who went to a private school, Black Rock, and uh, he would have played a little cricket. And then uh, later he attended when Lord Rugby, Sir John Maffey, as he was then, had an 11 out in Trinity. Uh, there an occasions when De Valera came and attended the match. Uh, so he's... <laughs> He, he can't be quite slotted into a box of being against cricket. He was a great rugby fan. He loved rugby. Uh, but uh, in deference to the GAA, and a lot of his followers would have been in the GAA, he stopped going to rugby matches uh, during his political career. Charles, I wonder if I could just jump backwards a little bit in time and ask you if um, 
The Great Famine had um, a significant impact on, on Irish cricket. And I wondered if um, victims you know, started to hate cricket as an, as an English game. And if, they, if so, do they sort of export this attitude to, as migrants when they go to the United States and the colonies? Because it might be rather significant for the development of cricket or non-development of cricket over there. Yes, I wouldn't have thought they would have identified it that early. This thing of identifying cricket as peculiarly English would have belonged to a, a later period. So I don't think it would have affected the famine emigrants. Also, a lot of the famine emigrants came from the west of Ireland, where there was little record of cricket being played, the very poor areas of the west. And, of course, they moved into colon, uh, communities of their own in America. And where cricket was played in America, places like Philadelphia, I suppose it would have been played largely by the old wasp communities. So the Irish, uh, the poor famine Irish who went, would have had little or no contact with it. I wouldn't have thought uh, cricket had any role in that particular episode. Of course, those people became very bitter about uh, uh, Britain and British uh, rule, much more so than people at home. They've always been a motor for more extreme nationalism than the Irish at home. In the 1880s, you say in your note that there were two Irishmen, Leyland Hone and Sir T.C. O'Brien, a hot-tempered baronet, as you describe him, who played test cricket for England. Tell us about that. These antecedents of Owen Morgan and Ed Joyce. Yes, Leland Holmes belonged to a very distinguished artistic family and literary family. Evie Holmes, the stained last artist, was one of them who did the the windows of the chapel at Eton. And um, they were Nathaniel Holmes, landscape. And uh, they were a very prominent Dublin family, but they were also a great cricketing family. And one of that family, Patrick Home, wrote a wonderful history of cricket in Ireland in the 1950s. He wrote it, which is a wonderful mix of social and cricketing history. So Leland Home was one of those, and he went to Australia was it uh, with Lord was Lord Harris or someone like that? Eighteen eighty, anyway. Sir Timothy O'Brien was a, a well-to-do person. He was a school at Beaumont, which was a Jesuit school. Then he went to Oxford. He got an Oxford blue, and he played for Middlesex. And um, he was uh, quite a good cricketer. Obviously, he got centuries and so, so on. And then he gave up and took to the hunting field later in life. But uh, he, he he was a very fine player. O- O'Brien is a very uh, distinguished Irish cricketing name. Uh, it's Kevin O'Brien, isn't it, who's done those well, wonderful yes, performances? Yes, yes, They wouldn't, uh, they're not the same family. I, you know, lots of O'Briens, because uh, Kevin O'Brien, they're wonderful players. Glorious player. When I was young, I played a lot with Kevin's father, who was played for Ireland later. Ginger, he was called. He's not Ginger anymore. And then these two sons, Niall and Kevin. Kevin, really, he's the most wonderful player to watch. And he's played some of the great innings. I mean, he was, when they're beating, he's the hero of Bob Bangalore because the Irish team beating them. I do, do you know, I, I watched that match I, I in Karachi. I was... Channel 4 sent me on an assignment to make a film about gangland violence in Karachi. Uh, and the idea, what the kind of clever idea, you, you, we went to an ambulance station and waited for somebody to shoot someone else. 
and then he got in the back of the ambulance and went to the scene of the crime. But most annoyingly, there was a quite a substantial peace deal between the gangs. And <laughs> so I was sat in the ambulance centre, and luckily they had on, and I watched that magnificent innings, match-winning innings by Kevin O'Brien. I couldn't believe it. Was it 150 balls or something like that? Yes, he 50 balls, he got his 100. And uh, I remember Jeffrey Boycott was commentating on it, and he kept saying, the leprechauns are going to win. (laughs) (laughs) It was the most... um, I mean, I was with a lot of Pakistanis, and they're all mad on cricket, and they were cheering. And, they, of course, green is their colour, and they were cheering on Kevin O'Brien as he... Oh, yes, they love that. (laughs) Yes. No, he's done very well. And then when when we played, it wasn't our first test match when we became a test uh, we played in Malahide against Pakistan and we were so badly beaten in the first innings it looked as if we could be disgraced and people would say they should never have been made a test team and then Kevin O'Brien got the most wonderful hundred and that wasn't the slogging innings he showed he could play at another level and it, it, we lost the game but we weren't disgraced which was so important No, he was a or oh, is a wonderful player. Charles, there's one other Irish player in the 19th century who played for England though he's very understandably forgotten, and that's the, in my view, legendary J.P. McMaster. He's England cricketer because they number the shirts. I think he's number 65. He went on the very first England tour, uh, organised tour of South Africa, and he played in as an amateur. He played in a second match, which was given representative status as a test match afterwards. He went in as number nine batsman. He was out first ball. He was caught at second slip. He didn't bowl. He didn't um, take a catch in the field. And that represented his entire first-class career. That was J.P. McMaster. It's impossible to have, statistically, to be a worse first-class cricketer than J.P. McMaster, but he's, he's, he's England's um, 65th Test match cap. Now, tell me about his Irish connection. <laughs> Let Charles explain how that came about. Well, I didn't know about it. It's Richard has really illuminated this whole area of life for me. Was he, uh, he was from Northern Ireland, of course. He became, yes. Yes, from born Ulster. Born in Guildford, County Down. Yes. Went to Harrow. Yes. Didn't get into the Harrow 11. Um, went to Oxford, I think it was Oxford, and got a lawn tennis blue, which was then a very exotic new sport, but didn't seem to play any cricket at Oxford. I, d- I don't know why years later he goes on this tour of South Africa, but there he is playing in what became a test match after the event, and that's his immortal record. Out first ball, no other contribution. And did he play any more cricket that was of note? No, nothing recorded. Nothing recorded anywhere. That seems to be the the end of his cricket career. He was a lawyer. Um, he was a fruit farmer. Um, he stayed on in South Africa at least some for some part of his life as a fruit farmer. He obviously liked the place, but never played any any other significant cricket or any recorded cricket at all. Now, moving on from that career. It's clear that one of the driving forces in the um, 19th century history of cricket in Ireland was Clongo's school in County Kildare, isn't that right? Yes, Clongo's, yes, yes, that's it. And um, yes, it was um, a great nursery of Irish cricket. 
and uh, around the turn of the uh, 20th century and produced many of the outstanding Irish cricketers. I did suppose there were great names here, but uh, of course Kettle, the poet, who's famous poem of the First World War. He was he'd been at school at Longos. He was killed at the Battle of the Somme. Um, yes. And before he, very shortly before he died, he wrote a sonnet to his only child. Do you read out some of those lines? They are so profound. It's a very fine sonnet. It was he was um, he was a constitutional nationalist and he had with John Redmond, who again a Tongonian and also a cricketer, they had backed the bear supporting Britain in the Great War and sending, you know, encouraging Irishmen to fight uh, for Britain in the Great War. And then, of course, the 1916 rebellion took place and there was a terrific reaction uh, against this support from Britain after the leaders were executed. And Kettle was at the front. Uh, he had gone to the front after the rebellion and he he would have found himself in a crisis because in a way the British-Irish relationship had been blown apart and still he was fighting in the British army and felt he was fighting a very evil force in the form of the Kaiser's Germany. And so this poem in a way arose out of that strange dilemma and he writes it to his daughter. In wiser days, my darling Rosebud, blown to beauty proud as was your mother's prime, in that desired, delayed, incredible time, they last why I abandoned you, my own, and the dear breast that was your baby throne, to dice with death. And though they'll give you rhyme and reason, some will call the thing sublime, and some decry it in a knowing tone. So here where mad guns curse overhead and tired men sigh with mud for couch and floor, know that we fools now with the foolish dead died not for flag nor king nor emperor but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed and for the secret scripture of the poor. My word, it's... It's a great Irish poem of the, of the World War. The secret scripture of the poor, I think, was Christianity. And they saw Kaiser's Germany as uh, challenging the whole Christian heritage of Europe. It's quite, uh, it's, it's hauntingly similar in some ways to Yeats's very, well, a wonderful poem, an Irish, an Irish airman foresees his death. You know, I balanced all, I mean, the, my country is Kiltartan Cross, my countrymen Kiltartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. I mean, and of course, that poem was was based, wasn't it, not on Robert Gregory, the uh, friend of Yeats, who played for Phoenix and was a leg spin bowler and, and served as an air pilot in the war. Yes, played for Ireland. Uh, different. Augusta Gregory, his mother, really, really was Yeats's great collaborator. They found at the theatres, and they were really the Anglo-Irish literary renaissance. And I think Yeats, ironically, didn't get on so well with Robert Gregory, to whom he wrote the poem. But this was a kind of when he died, and I suppose it's about the futility of war. Uh, in a sense, you know, he's... Um... 
But it's also sort of hints at a kind of beauty of war too, doesn't it? Yes, I suppose the adventure. Um, it's a different kind of thing to the kettle thing. Kettle was the was the crisis of an Irish nationalist at the time, and justifying himself was the Yeats one was, I think, just the whole futility of war, I think, rather than mm. anything else. Though there is notes, you know, Kiltartan's poor, I suppose, it's about, uh, about Ireland. They belong to slightly different worlds, Yeats and Tom Kettle, if you like. Yeats belonged to the uh, Protestant um, professional world, and he had broken with the unionism, which would have gone with that world, to for the Anglo-Irish literary renaissance and flirted with nationalism, if you like. So they came from slightly different perspectives. Don't think Yeats had any interest in cricket. Don't think he had any interest in sport. But uh... Which is a contrast with, uh, I mean, James Joyce also went to Clongos in, in, in the 1880s, didn't he? I mean, and he did write about cricket. Well, he has that very short a passage, wonderful kind of uh, the music of his words. But he'd left Longos by the time he was 10, and I don't suppose he'd have encountered too much cricket there by that age. And then I don't think he had uh, much, you know, contact with the game. Uh, he narrates then there's the sentence in Ulysses about the game he looks at in Trinity, saying, you know, that's... He's very much an outsider, I think, in that passage. Well, that ca- that passage is very interesting. Uh, interesting. I in Ulysses, he has Captain Buller breaking a window in the Kildare Street Club. Yes. Uh, now, I played at Trinity many times. Is it possible to break a window in the Kildare Street Club with a blow from Trinity College? Well, I think theoretically it would be possible. The windows are face on to Trinity. Right. If there were no trees there, you might be able or hit it over the trees. You could do it. But the evidence, it was a kind of legend uh, that uh, there had been this six hit there and had broken the windows. But it doesn't seem to be correct. <laughs> Your own examines it in cricket in Ireland. But Captain Buller did play in Trinity. That bit is correct. Captain Buller is certainly correct that he did. Who was Captain Buller? I don't know who he was. I think he was just a, a British Army officer uh, stationed in Ireland. I don't know anything about him. Was a slog to square leg, according to Ulysses. Yes, well, that's certainly where where you would slog the Kildare. You know, if you were batting at the pavilion end in College Park, uh, the club would be at square leg. <laughs> Charles, perhaps you could read out that very evocative passage in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, in which Joyce describes cricket at Clongos in the eighteen in eighteen ninety, I think it was. Um, yes, um, a short passage. There was no play on the football grounds, for cricket was coming. And all over the playgrounds, they were playing rounders and bowling twisters and lobs. And from here and from there came the sounds of the cricket bats through the soft grey air. They said, pick, pack, pock, puck, little drops of water 
in a fountain slowly falling in the brimming bowl. Oh, beautiful. So a twister is a spinner, isn't it? I suppose so, yes. It was, yeah. It was, yes. yeah. It was actually a wrist spinner. Yes. Oh, any, any wrist spinner was a twister. Yeah. Oh, really, yeah. Bertie Bosencat invented the googly. He was playing a game of twister on a billiard table when he invented the googly. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a fantastic piece of information, Richard. He was just wrist spinning in an experimental way with, um, with a billiard ball, and that was the googly. Or the Bosey, as it was originally called after him. Yep. A twister in Ireland, I think, is a fellow full of sharp practice. He's a twister. <laughs> would be a kind of crook. <laughs> well, of course, in Pakistan, if you, tr- if you translate the, the Pakistani term, the Urdu term for googly, what is it, Richard? It's a devilish evil ball or something. I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know a, what it is in, in Urdu, but it, is, it, has that mean, it certainly has that meaning in translation. Yeah. Charles, how much contact was there before partition between Irish cricket and English cricket and, you know, and indeed other cricket-playing countries? You know, did they get many visits from, from England? I think they got one from W.G. I think W.G. Grace came to Ireland at one point. Oh, a lot. Uh, he 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 first came in the 1870s. He had quite a number of appearances in Ireland. There's a lot of toing and froing between uh, the two countries uh, in cricket in that period. Earlier, of course, Isingari came over a lot, but that would have been sort of upper class cricket, if you like. But other teams came, the universities. Lord Trinity was a first class. If they played three games, they were first class. So there would have been a fair amount of toing and froing. Um, and did Irish teams come to come to England? Yes, uh, yes. Um, um, a team came over, about 1,900 gentlemen of Ireland team, and it played um, four first-class games in England. It beat Oxford, and it beat one of the English counties. I can't remember quite which one it was. But, um, yes, no, there would have been uh, and perhaps more English teams coming to Ireland. Trinity regularly played the universities, of course, um, the English, Oxford and Cambridge, they usually lost, but they played them nonetheless. Samuel Beckett played played two matches, didn't he, for the Gentlemen of Ireland? I think that's they're... a li- little later. That's the later, oh, he yeah. didn't play for the Gentlemen of Ireland. Yeah. I think he played for Trinity, and Trinity ranked as a first-class fixture. So he played for Trinity against Northamptonshire. Its last. In the 20s, it had its last first-class games, and he played in two of those, one in Northampton and one in Trinity. And he was quite a good cricketer. And then, of course, he goes to Paris, but he remains a regular uh, visitor to Lords for test matches after that. But when he was in Trinity in the 20s, there was a really very good Trinity team with some very good players. Charles, I'm, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're familiar with um, Wisden's obituary of, of Samuel Beckett, which concentrates very heavily on his cricket achievements and sort of adds his literary career as an afterthought, almost as a, as a disappointment after a, a sort of promising beginning. <laughs> yes, well, I think a number of the people in the Trinity side viewed it that way. They didn't know what he'd been up to after he left Trinity. Those fellows on record are saying that. He didn't seem to mix easily socially with them. He 
he seemed to say they were all off after the game, uh, doing various drinking and whoring, he said. And he didn't seem to be part of the integrate so well with the rest of the characters on the team. But uh, that was it. I hadn't read the wisdoms. Uh, oh, it, it, it's uh, I'll uh, I'll send it to you. It's it's <laughs> it, it's well worth reading. It's uh, it's just very deadpan and um, um, sort of mentions his Nobel Prize almost as an afterthought. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm. Some trace, you know, the elements of bleak existential despair in Beckett's work to his um, his cricketing career, but um, that may be a bit far-fetched. Yes. I do love the idea, though, of Beckett coming, taking the boat train, presumably, back from Paris to, because those were before the days of the Channel Tunnel, back from Paris for the Lord's Test and meeting up, doubtless, of a few Trinity cronies. I... Another character I'd like to ask you about is is Fowler of the famous 1910, wasn't it? The Fowler's match, Eton v Harrow, and Fowler's Fowler came from County Meath, I think. Yes, the, the family lived in County Meath, and uh, he would have played on Lord Dunsany. Dunsany's ground was the, they would have played there with the uh, his team on uh, which was also in County Meath. But he died very young, the father of Fowler's match. He didn't die in the Great Wars, you might think, but he died in the early 20s. I once went through the players who'd played in that match, 1910. They included Field Marshal Lord Alexander, who went on very fine cricket. He played quite a major role in that game and and went on to um, become president of the MCC besides his military career. And, uh, and also... Your father's mentor, Richard, Lord Monckton. Not his mentor, but a uh, man who played a very decisive part in my father's life, and, and therefore of mine, was uh, Walter Monckton. He's a wicketkeeper uh, who also became president of the MCC. My father was emigrated to, and our whole family emigrated to England in 1954, and my father was having great trouble getting a, what was then called an alien's work permit. And he was complaining about this to the friend who had sort of inspired him to come to England. And the friend was a cricketer, Stephen, called Stephen Fry. He was the son of the great C.B. Fry. And um, he said, um, oh, for goodness sakes, look, the um, Minister of Labour, Walter Monckton, the next president of the MCC, I'll have a word with him in the long room about this. And um, he did indeed buttonhole Walter Monckton, the Minister of Labour, in the long room, and um, Walter Monckton sort of signed a chit on the spot, saying, you know, give this man an alien's work permit. And that's why I'm here today. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> that was the early 1950s, that would have happened. 1954. Yep. The last Churchill government. You know. Yes, indeed. And did you say that Walter Monckton was a wicked keeper? He was a, I'm pretty sure he's a wicked keeper, yeah. Because Lingard, of course, his grandson is a was a who played on Patorti's team in Winchester when he was a schoolboy. Uh, he was a he's a wicked keeper. Lingard Golding, we're talking about here, aren't we? He was. I mean, he wasn't just a wicket keeper. He was. He was one of the greatest wicket keepers I've ever met. Uh, right, and he was still keeping wicket like a demon well into his seventies when I saw him a couple of years ago. Oh yes. I mean, we should discuss him. I mean, he's a massive figure in Irish cricket, isn't he, Lingard? 
Well, no, he wouldn't be a massive figure in Irish cricket. He's someone who avoided being a figure in Irish cricket because when he came back from school, uh, he scarcely played any cricket. Uh, motor racing became his thing. And then when he was in his 40s, he, began, he was headmaster of a prep school in County Meath, which largely groomed people for English public schools. And uh, he became the cricket master there. And that fired his enthusiasm for cricket again. So in his 50s, he starts playing again. And people are saying, God, this man's incredibly good. He could have been on the Irish team. He was like having an India rubber ball behind the stump. He was just incredibly good. I mean, people, he'd play occasional games in his prime. And people would try to entice him to play for clubs, but he wouldn't do it. And then he's gotten mad keen on cricket. Every winter, he's gone to Australia. And um, he's written books about cr- cricket in Australia and uh, so on. Well, we ought to have him on. The most, do you know, the, the single most intimidating cricketing experience of my very long career, not very distinguished, was playing at Mount Juliet the first time we ever played you, uh, Charles. 1984. And, uh, and we had Godfrey Graham bowling his leg spin. And he, of course, he'd played for Ireland, hadn't he, Godfrey? Uh, and I, you had Lingard Golding behind the stumps. Yes. And I really, you were paralysed into your crease with this great leg spinner. It was no way, there was no, it was impossibility. It was a horrible conundrum you presented us with. Oh, really? Oh, that's marvellous. I think I had such an effect on the opposition. Yes, I remember that. Godfrey, Godfrey, and Godfrey was a great cameraman, and he's written wonder. He did, he's made a wonderful film of cricket at Mount Juliet, which I think he showed you once. He did indeed, of, yes. Of a game at Mount Juliet. He's very talented uh, cameraman with RTE for many years and great lover of cricket of course and he played just once for Ireland and for years until Owen Morgan came along he was the youngest player ever to have played for Ireland. Godfrey was yes because he talks about bowling in the nets against Walter Hammond at Lords after the war. Really? Oh that's wonderful and uh, I didn't know that but he he certainly was sent over to be coached in Lords in the same way as I was later by the Irish Cricket Union and they said he ruined the, the people. A lot of people felt they damaged him because they tried to change the way he bowled mm. slightly, which is always a very dangerous thing to do with a bowler. He was a beautiful it's, it's, leg spinner. Particularly late in the career. Um, but that was quite late, early. Late in the career. It was quite early they did that, but he, whatever he had... He was never quite so effective again. So he was a schoolboy prodigy that didn't really fulfil that promise. But he remained a tremendous fan of cricket and done a lot for it. I'm trying. He sent me a, a long, beautiful essay he wrote about playing rural cricket in Ireland in the 1950s. It's about cricket at Dunsany. Was that, was that where the match was? Yes, yes. I'm sure you've well, read the essay too. Yes, the yeah. great, the old Lord Dunsany, the writer, who was the cricketing man who was interested in cricket, he had died by that stage, but his son had taken over. And I think it was all rather disappointing. They found they had no pavilion. They were expected to dress in the bushes and things. Oh, yes, of course, I remember. <laughs> they, weren't too, they weren't too taken by it. Uh, 
but um, Edward Dunsany, Edward Dunsany in his cricket, he had a duck which you wound up and he used to send, it was sent out to people who had made no runs <laughs> until some irate batsman came and smashed it with his bat coming in. So can you explain this? There was a mechanical duck, you said? Yes. Which, so you're out for naught and Lord Dunsany dispatches. That would be wound out to meet you as you came in, <laughs> and some irate man smashed the thing <laughs> after some game. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that was the device used on that the Australians do that in the Big Bash that you were met by the batsman is met by a cartoon duck. But Lord Don Saini, fifty hundred years ago, had foreshadowed this idea. Terry Packer, it was Daddles the Duck. Oh, that was well done, Richard. It was Terry Packer's <laughs> the idea. Cartoon yeah. duck, you know, a disconsolate duck used to accompany the batsman back to the <laughs> on the screen. Yeah, he was a great eccentric, the old Lord Don Saini, Edmund Don Saini. There is incidentally a legend that um, the cartoon character Donald Duck was named after Don Bradman. Because um, Donald Don Bradman made a, a, a tour of the United States, sort of coast to coast tour, with Arthur Maley, and he came to Hollywood, and I have a feeling um, that he was out for a duck at the Hollywood Cricket Club, and this phrase sort of stuck, you know, a, a, a Donald Duck, and that gave the name to the cartoon character. <laughs> Richard, you were so full of the most extraordinary well, that, information. I, I can't which... vouch for that. I think that may be apocryphal, as they say, but it's it's quite a nice story. Yeah. It's one form of immortality, anyway. Yes, <laughs> not that Bradman needed much. <laughs> the, the <Donald laughs> not need, that Bradman needed to be immortalised that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? Um, uh... Charles, there's so much more we could talk about Irish cricket history and the way that um, Irish literary history is intertwined with it. Um, so much more that we're going to ask you. We're going to try and make this a a two-innings match, and we'll ask you to come back, if it's convenient to you, uh, in perhaps a few weeks' time. In fact, there's so much to talk about, we might even have to make it a timeless test match. We certainly hope you'll join us again. Um, Charles, in the meantime, what are you up to? Well, I'm more locked down now, and um, storing up various memories and so on. And um, I have a, a book I'm trying to get published about a libel action that never took place which uh, dismissed general of the uh, Desert War tried made to sue Winston Churchill in the Irish courts and uh, never took me to settle before it got to hearing. But I got all the pre-trial correspondence and I assembled it into a short monograph. Perhaps I'd get that published. I, I, it needs to be... Who was the general who uh, felt that... And how, would, how did Churchill... Uh, how did, how did he get Locus in the Irish courts, potentially? Uh, well, the book was sold. Uh, the, oh. the, he, he was living, he'd gone back to live in Ireland, the general, and uh, he he bought the book and it was a sale in Hodges Figures and uh, the Dublin bookshop, and so he would have been able to sue there. Sorry, which book was was this in which he was allegedly defending? Oh, the War Memoirs. Oh, I see. I've missed, I've missed the point. Yeah. It republished the uh, it republished the minute back to London, which resulted in Auchinleck and Dorman Smith being dismissed after first Alamein. and uh, Dorman Smith considered that was defamatory, 
And of course, Churchill would have had a rough ride in an Irish court because people hadn't forgotten the Black and Tans and various other episodes of past history. So it could have been rather a good action. But Shawcross advised uh, Churchill. The Attorney General, wasn't he, Shawcross? He then? was the ex-Attorney General. Ex-Attorney, he was yeah. on his way out of the Labour movement at that stage, and he advised Ch- Churchill informally, and he managed to settle the action. So it didn't take place, but the correspondence is quite interesting. Did Churchill uh, yeah. apologise? No, he put a footnote in future editions and said that he wasn't imputing any blame to him. It was a poor apology, really. It was not a great performance. We're going to draw stumps for, the, <laughs> uh, for, for, for today, but we're going to uh, re-enter the field very soon because we've only taken the history of Irish cricket from the 18th century or Cromwell to up to, what, the 1920s, and there's so much more to discuss that we'd like you very much... Will you do us the great honour of... Of, of, of coming back, Charles. Oh, yes. You're doing me an honour, not the other way around. I, by the way, I we can we, on a podcast, you can't see people, but Charles is wearing the blazer of the Leprechauns Cricket Club. Oh, yes, I, I thought it well to, to do that, to um, <laughs> create an illusion of summer. So, Charles, I, I can see that you're, and you have an accompanying tie, that the colours are green, orange and black. We'll be... Re- I'll be asking you about the Leprechauns Cricket Club uh, when we get you back on. But tell us about those colours. Why do they? How how were they chosen? Well, <clears throat> apparently Bowlby, uh, who was the founder of it, thought that it was a symbol of Ireland, Irish unity that you'd have both green and orange uh, in the in the colours of the club. And I don't know why black was put in. Of course, uh, it's one of the features of Irish cricket that, unlike um, Irish soccer, uh, you know, there is a there is a national team, and we'll be asking you about to explain what why that is and much more besides uh, when you when you come back. So, but thank you very very much, and it's uh, it's been a delight talking to you, and it's goodbye for me, Peter O'Born, in a still blustery Wiltshire. It's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, and the bluster has come to southeast London. It's now windy and rainy. <laughs>